Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. It is uh, an exciting day. It's uh, our launch day for the year. It's good to be back. This is the first, we had a, a long January break, so I was meant to be here last week. First day in the office got COVID. Uh, Trudy preached last week, did amazing. I was meant to be here. Give her a round of applause for uh, the word that she brought last week. Uh, and I would uh, just love to bring a word around a real particular sense I had to start uh, my first preach for the year. And uh, it's a word that comes in the middle of Psalm 69, uh, verses 1 to 18. So that's the best place to begin. Let's start there. So save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched and my eyes fail as I look for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you be not put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Must be bad if drunks have written songs about you. <laughs> but I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I'm in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. Very uplifting uh, launch day uh, passage here. So some of you might be feeling a disconnect between that and the spirit of the day. Others may recognize and identify with some of the things that are in that passage. But the particular line that I want to preach on, and I felt it was important to actually put it in its context of where it sits in that whole passage, is the line where it says, and we've got it, I think, highlights it here on the next slide, zeal for your house consumes me. Zeal for your house consumes me. Now, it's interesting, the word zeal. It's a word that my sense was is a word that is dropping out of favor. It's not a word you hear a whole lot. It's an English word that we understand. But my suspicions were confirmed when I looked at Google's Ngram Viewer, where you can put any word and then see in published articles and books how often that has appeared and whether it's increased in use or declined in use. 
And looking back at zeal, zeal was a big, big word in the end of the 18th century. Throughout the 19th century, it was a word that was used a lot. But then the beginning of the 20th century, it began to decline and is a word that is actually used rarely in published materials in English. And I wanted to just, there's something about that word just stuck with me, the word zeal. And I was thinking about this over sort of the end of year break. It's a word that kept sticking with me. And then a story broke in the news, which I thought was a fantastic way to understand the word zeal and particularly the role it plays in Scripture. How do we understand this line, for zeal, for your house consumes me? Now, there was a story that broke it started on social media. I can't remember if it was December or January. And effectively, it began and it turned into a complete sort of viral storm online. And the story began, if you traced it back to its origins, began with a tweet that someone put up. And I'll come back to the tweet in a second. But the tweet was then confirmed by the story that broke in the news. And what happened in the news was that at a particular place in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, in New York, at an address that's known as 770, the international headquarters for Chabad House, which is the national sort of international sort of grounds, or if you like, the Vatican, for a particular branch of Orthodox Judaism, uh, the Lubavitches, which I'll explain a bit more about in a second. And in their synagogue, the NYPD had been called in because they'd actually discovered a series of tunnels that had been illegally dug on behind one of the walls in the synagogue. So this was a video that was online of the NYPD and the initial descriptions of the video were wrong. They said that people in the synagogue were fighting with the New York police officers because they discovered these particular tunnels that had been illegally dug within the synagogue. Now, the original tweet, which then people went and found was, I think it was a tweet from maybe four months earlier or six months earlier, where a man living in the area had said this. He says, he just tweeted this. He said, I don't, or should I say X now? He X'd it? Anyway, whatever, stick with Twitter. He said, I don't know if I'm going crazy, but I can hear in my walls people moving around, and I think they're speaking in Yiddish. Yiddish is an Eastern European sort of combination language of Hebrew and German. I think there's bits of Russian there. It's spoken by Jewish people who've come from the East of Europe. And he was right. There actually was people moving around in his walls and speaking in Yiddish. He hadn't gone crazy. Now, this tweet then went viral, the reports of this story, because also this takes place. There was, a, there was a sort of comic element to it. Some of the pictures were sort of quite comical of this wall being broken away and then them sort of pulling these uh, uh, people out from behind the walls. There's one video of a guy sort of emerging from a sort of New York uh, grate in the ground. But then this was in the context of the Israel-Gaza conflict. And so very quickly, this story, which is an internal story of us having a particular synagogue in Brooklyn, then went viral and then very quickly went from sort of a, a story about a crazy happening in, in a synagogue to really a torrent of anti-Semitic commentary around this, like stuff that is just absolutely abhorrent. And it just became this firestorm. But most people 
actually missed in whether seeing it as a comic story or behind this sort of anti-Semitic push around this story of what actually was going on. It wasn't that the NYPD was in a scuffle with people at the synagogue who were angry that they discovered these secret tunnels. And the tunnels went for like ages. They went out of the building and they went into different areas. It was like quite an elaborate, significant building operation. What had happened, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, The Shawshank Redemption uh, with Tim Robbins where he basically is a prisoner who digs his way out of a, 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 his cell and he, he puts uh, dirt in his trousers and has these little, I think it actually was stolen from The Great Escape um, with Steve McQueen. You know, and he sort of, they, so basically they were doing that. So these, these students, these yeshiva students studying the Torah at the synagogue were digging and they were putting it in their trousers and they were walking around these New York streets and sort of letting out uh, the dirt. It was quite an incredible act. So how had this happened? Okay, I want to tell you the story of actually what was going on because it actually relates to the passage you just read. In 1951, there was a new leader of the international Chabad Lubavitcher movement. This was a branch of Orthodox Judaism that had come out of Eastern Europe, one of the biggest in the world, and they got a new rabbi. Now, one of the key differences between Christianity and Judaism is really about the Messiah. Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is crucified, that he was risen on the third day, that he is God, and that the Messiah has come. In Judaism, they're still waiting for the Messiah. And so often in Judaism, there's this, this, this looking for when is the Messiah coming. And so this particular rabbi in 1951 takes over the Chabad movement, and his name was uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. And he takes over, and he's very renowned, very learned, seen as very pious. Uh, the Chabad movement grows. And then in 1991, he gives a sermon. And at the height of this sermon, at the very end, to all of his students who are following him, he says this. It says, you listening here today are the last generation. And what he means by that is, you're the last generation, and Mashiach, in Hebrew, Messiah, is coming. So get ready. And this created an absolute firestorm of excitement. And then, people wanted to know more. Like, what's the rabbi saying? Who is the Messiah coming? Where is the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? He's coming. Where are the ones after how many thousands of years of Jewish life are going to actually see the Messiah? And so, something crazy then happens is they want him to elucidate on this more, but then he has a stroke and loses the ability to speak. And so, like, well, what, what is Messiah? And a group within the Chabad movement actually comes to believe that Rabbi Schneerson himself is the Messiah. And so this just goes like crazy, like, hang on, the Messiah is here, Mashiach is here. If you still see today, you'll see in Melbourne, particular trucks driving around. If you go to Balaclava in these areas, you'll sometimes see them in the CBD. And they've got pictures of Rabbi Schneerson still, and they've got on the sides like, prepare, Mashiach is coming. So this just creates this absolute, like, phenomenon within the Chabad movement all around the world of is the Messiah here, and is our rabbi a leader actually this Messiah? There are some who agree, some disagree. But then, I think it was in 1994, the unthinkable happens. Rabbi Schneerson dies. 
And so for a large percentage of the movement, they are like, that proves he's not the Messiah because the Messiah is not meant to die. But then there's another percentage, really interestingly, sort of almost influenced by the Christian belief in the resurrection. They're like, no, Rabbi Schneerson is the Messiah, and we're going to wait until he then reappears, ends the exile that the Jewish people have been in, and brings in Messiah and brings in the, basically the kingdom of God. And so this battle within the movement, imagine if a church, there's sometimes theological arguments or divisions. This is what happens inside this Chabad movement worldwide. And this battle over this particular building starts to begin. And the group who believe that he's going to come back and he's going to be resurrected, they start to do stuff. Now, one of the things he said is that although they realize that if this is actually the shul or the synagogue of the Messiah, it's a bit run down. They've got to do some repairs on it. And it's not big enough because if Messiah is coming to Crown Heights, Brooklyn, in this particular building, they need a building project. And this literally a planning dispute happens, as I understand it, between the two sides, and they get like, no, you can't expand it. You're not going to get a building permit from the city of New York, and we're not going to give it to you. So the young group within this Messiah movement actually then says, you know what? We need zeal. In us, we need to be consumed by zeal for God's house. This is the Meshul, the synagogue of Mashiach, the Messiah. We have to do something, and we need chutzpah to go on above and beyond. So what they start doing, again, spoons, they start digging, they're sneaking in like, like spades, and underneath the noses of the authority who were running this, they literally start to build an extension to the building that no one sees. I mean, think about this. It's like if there was a faction within Red Youth <laughs> who were like, no, this building you know, here in Nunawading, yeah, it's good, you know, but we need to extend it because God's wanting us to extend it. And the Seventh-day Adventists, they don't want to extend it. The city of White House, they're not giving us plans. VCAT does not approve. <laughs> but we have to have zeal for God's house. We have to have zeal, chutzpah, for the Lord. So we're just going to do it illegally. So after youth, we're going to, or maybe during youth, we're going to distract some of the leaders and some of us are going to get down the stairs. Some of you have been down there. And we're going to create a false wall. And we're going to start digging an extension to this building. That's literally what happens in this story. Anyone's getting ideas here? Please don't. It's not the point. It's a metaphor. It's a story. But what is happening is zeal is a key understanding that these young men had biblically. So the NYPD come in, and the brawl was actually not between, or it's not really a brawl, it was a, on a scuffle, was not actually between the NYPD and the Jewish people in the room. It was actually the NYPD were like peacekeepers between these very zealous students and the rest of the synagogue who were like, hang on, you built a secret passage? What on earth are you crazy people doing? And they're pulling people out. But zeal is a really, really important word biblically. Zeal is something that they were encouraged. In the Mishnah, which is the commentaries that Orthodox Jews read on the Torah, the scriptures, the first scriptures of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, one of the, the lines in the Mishnah is, with your faith, be as fierce as a leopard. And I read this off Chabad's own website, when it talks about zeal and chutzpah, it says, 
For one thing, we need to walk right over the challenges that confronted Jew living his heritage in a secular world, pushing from all sides just to be like everyone else. And what this does is it helps us understand this long history we see in scriptures of this word zeal. See, the scriptures talk about God entering into a covenant with the people of God. Of all the different nations, he chooses the Hebrew people and he creates this covenant with them to be the people of God. But what the scriptures then tell the story of is that around the people of God are the nations, the Goyim. And the nations do not follow God. Psalm 2 talks about them raging against the order of God. They're like coming as a force against the chosen people of God, and they're constantly trying to allure them. Sometimes it'll be leading them astray. Sometimes it'll be trying to get them to enter into relationships that they're not meant to be in. Other times it's military alliances. But ultimately the thing is to no longer worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but instead worship the other gods through idolatry. So when you read Psalm 69 at the beginning and you see the psalmist like depressed and talking about enemies on every side in this language of water, of like being over swamped, what that language is talking about is the constant pressure of trying to live your faith when you're surrounded by bigger dominant idolatries that constantly want to squash you in your faith. Yet the meat in the middle of this sandwich of all these complaints is that zeal for your house consumes me. In the midst of pressure to compromise, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, zeal is the meat in the sandwich. In the word, in Hebrew, the word zeal is kinah. And it captures this sense of having zeal, but has all these romantic connotations as well. But not romantic. It's not like, here, have a flower and let's watch the sunset go down over Lilydale Lake. Um, It's more this sense of almost jealousy, almost passion, almost fighting for the person that you love. And so... What was then instilled is that to be the people of God, when you're surrounded by this pressure, you need zeal. And so we see these stories of Elijah fighting off in a spiritual battle, the prophets of Baal, that's zeal. When Noah is building an ark and everyone thinks he's an idiot, that's zeal. This word that we use that, I don't know, maybe you've picked up over the years, this Yiddish word of chutzpah is to have zeal, to do something that's That's almost not caring of what anyone thinks. And so the story, particularly of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures, is of the people of God having zeal continually to follow in God. And often the story is that everyone else compromises in the people of God, but there's certain individuals, Nehemiah, to rebuild the wall, the prophets to go against the grain of the day, to do almost crazy things in order to have zeal for God's house and his presence. N.T. Wright says this, zeal was the outward badge of the unbreakable relationship. It was a sign of determination in the midst of a world that was pressured against faith. But zeal can also go wrong. There's another use of the word zeal. In time of Jesus, when Jesus was walking 
around teaching. There was a group, and they were known as the Zealots. The Romans had occupied that part of the world, and this group were known as the Zealots, and they had this zeal, and their zeal was almost to fight like guerrillas. They also called the Sicarii, which was a reference to a kind of knife. And what would happen is there'd be a Roman official in a particular area, and there'd be a crowd, and they just would walk up behind them and stick this knife into their back in this political assassination. So we have this sense of, hang on, to be overly zealous can be a negative thing. Now, even interestingly, in the New Testament, we read that zeal for God can even go wrong. It can turn into striving. In Romans 10, verses 2 to 3, Paul says this, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not have the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So what Paul is saying here is you can have this zeal, you can have a zeal for God, yet it's this striving where in a sense you're trying to perform this act of zeal in order to, in a sense, establish your own righteousness before God. And he says this, I haven't got this up there, but he says in Philippians 3, 4, 6, he speaks from personal opinion. Paul was, like in a sense, one of those yeshiva students who would do anything. He says this, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have the reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, the Torah, as a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's saying the zeal he had actually was what was causing him to go after the church and chase them down and persecute them as the early church was growing. But then Jesus on the road to Damascus encounters the living Jesus. And, and, and Paul is then confronted by this reality that all of this striving, all of this zeal that he has put his life to that's not what it's about. It's actually about grace. So zeal is something that we encourage to live, but not as a performance which will then earn us salvation. It actually is a posture of response. So how do we ensure that our zeal does not go into bad directions? Well, in John's, chapter, John's gospel, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, it says this. The Passover of the Jews were near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered... Remembering Psalm 69 that we began with, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had zeal. It's a misreading of this sermon. If we just see zeal as something that's from the Old Testament, something that still exists in contemporary Judaism and parts of it, Jesus had zeal. And one of the dangers I think we can have with, with Jesus is to actually reimagine him more according to the, the sort of I guess, imagination of 21st spirituality where he's just some chilled out guy who just would find sitting on the beach in Byron Bay, just relaxing with no agenda and just, I don't know, looking at a tree. Jesus, no doubt, at times looked at trees. Jesus, no doubt, at times 
had moments of relaxation. But Jesus still was about his father's business and this tradition of zeal, which we see through the scriptures, still is spoken about Jesus. So how do we ensure that we have zeal pointed in the right direction? Well, Jesus is our model. Zeal must come not from us, but from the Holy Spirit. Not from human agendas, not from the world, not from us, but it's actually something that in a sense is implanted in us when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Anglican bishop uh, from the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, said this, Zeal in Christianity is a a burning desire to please God, to do His will, and to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. It's a desire which is not natural to men or women. Really key line. You are a human being filled with natural desires. The zeal that we're talking about here is not natural. Ryle goes on. It is a desire which the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when they're converted to Christ. However, desire which some believers feel so much more strongly than others that they deserve to be called zealous men and women. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, that zeal, true zeal from God, is never self-confidence in us or our ability. There are people who are naturally zealous. Second thing about zeal, true zeal, is that zeal tends to be focused upon one thing. People, almost all of you, have something that you have a singular focus upon. Some, it might be a hobby. Some, it might be an interest. Some, it might be a football team. Some, it might actually be a relationship. Some, it might be a past pain. Zeal is very much a singular focus on something. But true zeal, the zeal that we're talking here from a biblical perspective, Again, Ryle says this, a zealous person in Christianity is preeminently a person of one thing. It's not enough to say that they are earnest, strong, uncompromising, meticulous, wholehearted, and fervent spirit. They only see one thing. They care for one thing. They live for one thing. They're swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Three, zeal must be tended and maintained. When I was 17, actually Trudy was there, we weren't dating at the time, but she happened at this event. And I remember going up to Belgrave Heights, they had the Belgrave Heights Convention Center up there, and we went up this for a young adults youth event. And I'll never forget something that one of the speakers said. He'd done this great talk, and at the end, you know, it's youth, he'd, he'd called people to an altar call. And there was heaps of people came forward. And he said this, he said, you guys are so passionate at this moment. And he said, you're young, and there's this sense of zealousness to being young. Young people, in a sense, don't think about consequences. They're filled with hopes and emotions and often energy and hormones, and, and they can stay up all night and, and oh, to have that energy back. But he said this, he said, I was surrounded by friends like you, totally sold out for Jesus. And he said, something's going to happen to a lot of them, and it may happen to you. And he said, they're still great people. I'm still friends with them. When we're your age, we want to change the world for Jesus. We want to live fully for him. But he said, now when I talk to him, and he said this line, I'll never forget it. He said, they're more zealous 
about when you get into their car, that if your shoes are dirty, they don't mess up the mat in their brand new car. And we looked at each other and thought, we're never going to do that. We're never going to lose our zealousness and be more interested in the interior of our cars. Well, decades later, it happened to people. I didn't get obsessed with the inside of their car. But the worries of life, the patterns of life, these things came and people lost their zeal. And many of the people that I went down the front with that day, uh, no longer walking with Jesus, or they go to church every now and then. As Romans 12, 11 says this, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Zeal must be tended and maintained. Yeah, there's a zeal which is sometimes youthful and idealistic and immature, but with maturity, zeal also must be partnered. Just to end, I I, want to reflect on an example of zeal that I saw as I was thinking about this. In the holidays, I watched an old movie. So often you watch movies to not think about things, or I find this when I do sermons, and then the, the movie, which I thought would have nothing to do with the sermon I was trying not to think about, ends up completely pointing me back to the thing I was about to preach on. So I watched the old classic Steven Spielberg movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There's no way you can get any spiritual uh, examples out of that for a sermon. I was, I was safe. But no. Nah. It's a movie about zeal. It's actually a really fascinating Jewish story. Steven Spielberg grew up as an Orthodox Jew. He drifted away from it later on to California into sort of still as a Jewish identity, but sort of called more new agey belief. But really what the story of Close Encounters is, it mirrors many of the people's stories in the scriptures. Close Encounters comes from a, a, a concept I think it was from uh, Heineck or Jacques Vallée, one of these early UFO researchers, which talked about if you see a UFO, that's like a first encounter. I think if it lands, that's the second encounter. If you meet the aliens, that's the close encounter of the third kind. And it's about an ordinary guy. I think we've got a photo of him here. Uh, I, think, I think he's named Roy, uh, played by Richard Dreyfus. And one day driving out, he's a linesman, makes sure that the power lines are, are working. He has this encounter out in the wilderness, who does this sound like, with this thing that's beyond his understanding. It's a UFO. And he is completely transformed. He's a young dad, probably in his late 20s, early 30s, with with kids. And what's brilliant about the movie is it just captures sometimes that absolutely chaotic sort of mode that often young family life is like. Brilliantly, the soundtrack is just everyone's talking over everyone. When there's like a a shot of the people having dinner, there's mess everywhere. The kids are like still trying to wake up. It's this cacophony of sound uh, and and just loudness that raising early kids is like, I'm sorry if this is not relating to many of you. Um, I think it's relating to some of you. And there's this sense where he's just a guy in the midst of normal life. But then after having this encounter, with this UFO, he becomes singularly obsessed with something. It starts with his shaving, and he sees in the shaving this sort of shape of of a landmark. And then in this scene, he's 
at the dinner table, something's changed about him. His family are looking at him saying, like, you've had this encounter, something's changed about you. And he starts actually building this model out of his mashed potato. And what's he building? He's actually building a mountain. And then this overwhelming zeal, let's go to the next photo, is this begins to completely overtake him. There's this great scene, they live in this suburb and you know, people with little kids, but he just is overtaken by this incredible zeal for one thing, this mountain. He's got to get to this mountain. Again, has an encounter in the wilderness, has got to meet something otherworldly, supernatural, at the top of a mountain, super biblical sort of themes there in the background, playing around of, of people like Moses and Elijah. His family eventually leave him because he just starts building, starts ripping out plants and getting dirt from his neighbor's yards, and they're just looking at him like he's an absolute nutcase while he's building this complete replica of this mountain in his lounge room. He finally gets to this mountain with his family having left him. And again, too, this is where the biblical symbology is very sort of present in the film. They get to the mountain, or the NASA people or whatever, if they've got their little landing point there because they've had this agreement the aliens are going to land there. And before the aliens arrive, the mountain then is covered in this cloud. That's the image there. Again, too, this is very clearly a reference to Mount Sinai. Now, what's interesting, though, we've got this idea of someone who has an encounter, someone who then is taken over by zeal, someone who's singular in their focus to go and have this encounter with something beyond, this imagery, there's even this bit where when the aliens arrive, echoing Exodus, he hides in the cleft of the rock, like Richard Dreyfus is hiding in the cleft of the rock as the alien presence turns up. Again, super parallels to the book of Exodus. But then it goes in this slightly different direction. The aliens land, and Richard Dreyfus, again in the last picture, uh, asks permission to go on board. And Richard Dreyfus becomes the singular figure who gets on board the alien ship and then goes with him into outer space. Now, interestingly, Steven Spielberg reflects to this day he would rewrite the end of this movie. You know why? Because he realized that what he was doing was this message of, ultimately, here's a man with young kids. And there's very emotional bits in the movie where the young kids are crying as they see him get this obsession. He leaves his wife, he leaves his kids, he leaves his responsibility. And Spielberg later reflected that that was almost part of him, like the young father wanting to escape from the domestic world and disappear. And so zeal can't be something which is directed towards simply escape. It's like we have so many of the biblical elements here. There's something in humans where we have zeal for something beyond us. Every one of us. And I was thinking about this. The angle I was almost going to go with as I was preparing this sermon is Melbourne's a zealous place. People are burnt out and we don't have zeal much anymore and we're not related to people who have zeal and it's a foreign concept and Melbourne's just a low energy city at this point in time. But you know I was thinking? People in this city will line up early in the morning for croissants. They will go into the city and line up in the street, in the cold or the hot, for croissants. Like, they're good, but are they worth lining up for? People will line up for tickets for the football finals. 
People will line up for concerts. Melbourne is a city filled with zeal. But what you realize when you read the story in the scriptures is that what it's asking of the people of God to never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual further, serving the Lord. But we're called to do that, not in some otherworldly space where you disappear from your ordinary life. You're called to hold on to your zeal in the midst of your ordinary life. The encounter that the people have with God on the top of the mountain, in complete contrast to what happens with Richard Dreyfus, is they don't then disappear into an otherworldly realm, is they come down from the mountain, and what God is doing is asking for people who will live with zeal in the midst of the world that we're called to. To live with zeal when we face disappointment. To live with zeal when we're surrounded by sometimes by situations with the frustrating. To live with zeal when you're in your workplace or in your relational circles or just in the general milieu of the world at the moment for this pressure against your faith to continue to live with zeal. Yeah, it will mature. Yeah, it may feel different than when you're a teenager. But I think there's a challenge here today as we go forward that I think, to be honest, we're not in the place where we're overzealous in our faith. There are people who may be like that. Sometimes when you're mature, you often get focused on one particular element of faith and you, you forget the big picture and all this sort of stuff. But I think the reality is that we in the church need to rediscover us here at Red. What is it to live with zeal for God in this world? Do it maturely. And it's interesting, in, in Romans 9, verses 13, where it actually says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. That's also in the midst of a sort of sandwich. It says, love must be sincere, hate what's evil, cling to what's good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above each other yourselves, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual further, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So all that stuff's around it. And in a sense, it counterbalances when it could go into bad directions. But the question I want to leave with you is, where is your zeal at? Is it a fire that is burning inside of you? Is it sort of at that medium gas level where it's a bit of warmth? Is it something which is starting to putter out as the pressures and the domestic realities of what is to live today start to push in on it? We need to tend that flame. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us zeal, to have chutzpah, to go over, as the Chabad people say. So what I would love to do to end, to begin this year, is I would like us to pray for zeal. Let's stand. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray for us all. Um, it'd be great too if we had some of the prayer team, maybe just on the, on the sides, if people would like to be prayed for. And if you would like to pray for your zeal to be maintained, perhaps start for the first time, to be grown, to be used wisely. We're going to offer you the opportunity. There'll be people on the sides to be prayed for. Um, I think we've got some people over here. I think Trudy's heading over there as well. But let me just pray. God, we realize we live in a world which comes to quench that zeal. And like the people of God throughout history, we feel that pressure. We feel the distraction. We feel 
how our emotions, stuff from us, will often quench the zeal that you ask us to have. God, I pray that you give us fervor. God, I even pray that you give us divine chutzpah to actually boldly go forward in our faith. God, it's hard sometimes when we see the zeal go out in people around us. But I just want to just pray particularly for people here who find themselves in a situation where that zeal is being challenged to restart the fire. God, we're called in the world to be your people. There are people here who have relationships in different situations, who find themselves in so many scenarios in the world. God, may we be people of zeal. May we also be wise in that. Maybe we mature in that. But I just want to just pray in Jesus' name that you just fire up our zeal. I ask this in your name. So what we're going to do now, we're going to worship. As we're worshiping, if you'd like your zeal to be expanded, zealed up, I think I heard someone say. I like that, zealed up. If you want it to be zealed up, come and be prayed for on the side.